Well, if you'll turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Samuel chapter 14. Now, we're going to pick back up in our study of 1 Samuel today, and you may have noticed the, the title of the sermon there, The Foolishness of Saul Part 2. Uh, probably more fitting would be the title, The Foolishness of Saul Continued, because there are many parts to Saul's foolish acts, his rash vows, and we'll see that today in our text. But you may recall just in the last chapter where we saw this foolishness really begin was when Saul did not wait on Samuel. Uh, he had been given very specific instructions from the Lord about uh, how they were to prepare a sacrifice and seek God's blessing before a battle. And uh, Saul grew impatient. He didn't wait. And when that took place and when he uh, made that offering without Samuel's instruction, Samuel's guidance, he was in disobedience to God. And so when Samuel arrives, he lets him know that he has lost the blessing of God. There in 1 Samuel 13, verse 13, Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which He commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. And so not only does Saul lose the blessing of God, his household loses the blessing of God, which is significant, especially as we're now in the part of the story where we see how Jonathan uh, would have been a great king. In fact, many of the people, it seems, even in today's passage, they, they want to follow Jonathan. They're looking towards Jonathan for leadership, and yet that blessing has been removed from Saul's household because of his sin. He's lost the blessing of God. He's lost the guidance of God uh, through his priest Samuel. And then the foolishness only continues. And we'll see that in today's text. As you may recall where we left off last uh, two weeks ago in our study, uh, the Philistines had, uh, were in the process of being conquered by the Israelites. Jonathan and his armor bearer had gone in uh, just as a, a two-man army and it started to defeat them. And then uh, the Israelites that were left with Saul, they begin to go over and fight as well. And then there's that, that whole picture we have of, of Saul kind of really just kind of fumbling through what to do. He calls out the ark of God. He has this priest with him uh, who comes from this glory departed family and and he's doing all these things while his army's over here fighting and then eventually he joins them and and at that point they have the philistines on the run but notice how quickly things seem to change as we pick up in our text today we're going to look at the remainder of chapter 14 verses 24 through 52 and out of reverence for god's word if you're able to if you would stand as i read the holy inspired word of god for us. And this is what we read. And the men of Israel had been hard pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now, when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath, so he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand, and he dipped it in the honeycomb, and he put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, 
your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon. And the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, come here, all of you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. And there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? Is this guilt in me or in Jonathan my son? O Lord God of Israel, so give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. And Saul said, cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. And Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. And Saul said, God do so to me, and more also, you shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not, <coughs> excuse me, there shall not one hair on his head fall to the ground. For he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were... Jonathan, Ishvi, 
Malchi Shua. And the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Mirab, and the name of the younger, Michal. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimeaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner the father of Abner, who was the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting between the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or valiant man, he attached him to himself. You will pray with me. Father, we come again to a portion of Scripture where there is much here that might seem a bit odd to us, even a bit confusing to us. There are unfamiliar names and unfamiliar places and unfamiliar practices. An easy passage for us just to kind of move on over and go to the next. And yet, this is your inspired word and it is profitable to us today. So teach us from it. Admonish us from it. Reprove us from it. Help us to be equipped in all righteousness as we consider what your word has to offer us today. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, how many of you this morning would consider yourself Star Wars fans? None, two, three, some. Don't be embarrassed. If you have watched the Star Wars movies, you know that uh, for at least those three sets of trilogies, there's a familiar opening to them. And so when the movies start, there's this scrolling text. And as that scrolling text comes on the screen, it's a reminder to you that these are the Star Wars films because it always starts out the same way. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And then what follows are a few sentences, maybe a couple of paragraphs that essentially help you as the viewer better understand what's taken place leading up to what you're about to watch. Now, there are some of you who may be uh, beyond the fan level with Star Wars, and you don't need that scrolling text because you know all kinds of storylines. You know storylines that aren't even storylines. You know all kinds of things about it, but for the rest of us, it's helpful to have that, that primer, that reminder, because after all, the first Star Wars movie came out in 1977. <laughs> there are decades that span between the, the beginning of this story and the recent installments of this story, and so it's helpful for us as viewers to, to get this reminder of what has taken place up until the point of the opening scene. In many ways, we need something like that as we read through 1 Samuel and study through it because so much has happened from 1 Samuel chapter 1 now to the end of 1 Samuel 14. You can almost picture that scrolling text coming up and saying, a long time ago in a kingdom far, far away. It's a reminder to us of all that's happened here, how we're in the period of the judges and how everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes and how that point came for the Israelites when they wanted a king like the nations around them and where they rejected God as king and they wanted a man as their king and they wanted this man to lead them into battle and to fight their battles for them. 
And then as that text would scroll, it would tell us a summary of Saul who went out looking for his father's donkeys and how that was a divine appointment for him to come into contact with Samuel and how he was blessed in that private ceremony and later in a very public ceremony and anointed the king, the first king over Israel. But then there would be a few more sentences and a few dots of how Saul had lost the blessing of God. How Saul had lost guidance from the priest of God. And then perhaps as the text rolled off the screen and as that first scene opened up, we'd have a picture of Saul and his glory departed priest fumbling over some type of religious ritual on one side of a valley while Jonathan and his armor bearer and now the Israelites were over there conquering the Philistines. A picture of a king with no kingdom, or at least a kingdom that is being taken from him little by little. That's where we find ourselves now at the beginning of today's passage. And I hope that there's something as we come to this scene that perhaps you've noticed, or at least that you will notice as we study today. That ever since that moment, when Samuel came to Saul and said to him that he had lost the blessing of God, since that moment, it seems that Saul has become a very religious person. I mean, up until this point, we, we don't see a lot of religious practice with Saul, but from that point moving forward, it's almost as if Saul is chafing, chasing after this blessing that's been taken from him. And he's trying everything he can imagine, every religious ritual. He's pulling out all the stops because he, he wants this blessing from God, or at least he wants the victory from God. And so he becomes very religious. And so that's why while Jonathan and his armor bearer and the Israelites are going after the Philistines, he's over here trying to get the ark of God and trying to invoke some prayer that's going to give him victory. And that's why I believe we see many of the things take place that happen in this text today. These are religious attempts of a king who's lost the blessing of God. Saul, it would appear, is a very religious person at this point. But friends, I believe he had an empty religion. I believe he had a religion outside the context of a, of a covenant relationship with God. He, he was going through the religious motions, but his heart was the problem. That's what needed to be changed. And so his religion was empty. And, and I want us to think about that today because we live in a, in a culture where there's empty religion all around us. And perhaps even for some of you, what you are doing today is empty religion. Religion not based out of a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ. Of course, the question there would be, well, how do you discern that? How do you know that? How do you know if you're just going through the motions or if what you're doing stems out of a true, genuine, salvific relationship with God through Jesus? Well, that's what I want us to think about as we walk through this text today and as we better define what empty religion is. Beginning with that first point there in your outline. We see in this text that empty religion seeks deliverance over devotion. It seeks deliverance over devotion. Now notice how different things are in verse 24 than verse 23. And we come to verse 24 and we read that all the men of Israel had been hard pressed that day. But we're coming off of a passage that ended with, so the Lord saved Israel that day. 
So when we left off two weeks ago, we had this picture of the Israelites pursuing the Philistines, conquering the Philistines. The Lord has saved Israel. It seems that everything's going well. And now we come to the next verse, and the people are hard-pressed. The question is, well, what does that mean? Why are they hard-pressed? Well, we read the answer as we continue in the text. In verse 24, we read that Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it's evening, and I am avenged by my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now, what would normally happen, and what you may have noticed in other passages of Scripture in the Old Testament, is that when God's people were conquering an enemy and defeating an enemy, normally they would get the spoils from that enemy. Now, there were times when God gave specific instructions and He told them not to do that and He gave them reasons for that. But in general, what we would often see is as an army was conquered and would flee, they would leave many of their provisions behind. And so the conquering army then, in pursuing them, would gather those provisions, would eat of those provisions, and would continue in their pursuit. But that's not what takes place here. Saul has given this oath, he's given this command, that his army should not eat before evening. And if they do, they will be cursed. And so the picture we have here is of an army that is just insanely hungry and famished. I don't know what you might call this in your house, but in our house, we call this being hangry. It's a cross between hunger and anger. It's kind of this grumpiness that comes when everyone's ready to eat and the meal's overdue and people are starting to get hangry. Well, I think they're three steps beyond hangry at this point. They are famished. They are hard-pressed. They have not eaten. And they fear Saul's oath. Now, the text doesn't tell us at this point much of what this curse was, of what he said would happen. But we know, at least later in the passage, that Jonathan believes that as a result of breaking this oath that he didn't know about, that now he's going to die. And that gives us a better understanding then of why these men would be so fearful. Perhaps they are fearing for their very lives if they're to eat food and eat of the spoils of the Philistines. Well, then to make matters worse, notice what happens. Verse 25, this hangry army pursues the Philistines and they come into a forest and in that forest there's literally honey everywhere. It is dripping out of the honeycombs. And so not only are they hungry and famished, they're surrounded by provision. And they're getting worse and worse and worse. And then notice what happens. Jonathan, in verse 27, well, he eats the honey. Now the text tells us here that Jonathan didn't hear his father's threat against anyone who ate. And and that might prompt us with the question, well, why is it Jonathan didn't hear this? Well, If you're a parent, have you ever given your kids an instruction only to have them not follow it, and then they say to you, well, I didn't hear you say that. I didn't know that's what you said. And Sandy and I were talking about that with our four children. I told her if I had a dollar for every time that happened, I could fulfill our Lottie Moon goal right now. It happens all the time. Kids, sometimes there's this tendency to kind of zone out what the parents say, and and perhaps... That's happening here with Jonathan, but I think there's probably a better explanation than that. 
That that picture we have of Jonathan in the Scripture here is that he's not waiting on his father's instruction. His father so often is cowering in fear. And he is inspired. He, he is courageous. He is following the Lord and seeking to please the Lord. And he is going the first one into battle. And so chances are is that Jonathan was the first one still. And he was out in front. And he was out on the front lines. That he wasn't there to hear this instruction from his father. He was probably fighting while his father was back there making threats. Which then gives us the question, prompts us with, well, why was Saul making this threat? I mean, things seemed to be going well. The army was being conquered. The Israelites were winning. Well, why make this threat? Well, there could have been practical reasons for Saul. We see here that he's a very fearful and worrisome leader. And so perhaps he was worried that if his army stopped and ate of the spoils of the Philistines, the Philistines would get away. And so practically, he didn't want his army stopping. He wanted them to pursue. But I'm not sure that really makes sense because he tells them just not to do this till evening. So obviously at some point they're going to get to stop and they're going to get to eat. But there may have been a practical consideration. I think what might be more likely and what many commentators in reference to this passage note is that this is another religious attempt of Saul. That what Saul has ordered here essentially among his people is a fast. That he wants them to fast and not eat. Why? Because he's seeking again to earn God's favor. He's seeking again to earn God's blessing. You'll see this picture here, and we've seen it already a bit, that Saul isn't hearing from God. That God is silent when it comes to Saul. That covenant relationship is broken. And Saul, I believe here, this is yet another attempt on his behalf to earn the favor of God. Or at least to ensure victory and deliverance. But it seems that he has no favor. The only one it seems has favor here is Jonathan. Because after eating this honey, which incidentally the text tells us, it, it makes his eyes bright. We, we don't really know what that means. I, I looked into it quite a bit and never did find it. I, I don't know about you, but in, in our house we eat a lot of honey. In fact, uh, often in the morning I'll make uh, Caroline waffles. I'll put some honey on there. Her eyes don't change. <laughs> she looks just as tired while she's eating that as before. But, but I think the picture here is an indication that because they were so famished that this was a great blessing to them and that it was rejuvenating them, perhaps. But Jonathan has that experience. No one else has it. And Jonathan then looks at the situation in verse 29 and says, my father's troubled the land. So there's no sense here with Jonathan that, oh wait, my father was right. What my father said was good. No, he says that this is wrong. He shouldn't have given this oath. He shouldn't have put this burden on his army. He has brought trouble to the land. And he did that because I believe Saul had an empty religion. He was seeking deliverance over devotion because that's what empty religion so often does. Saul here seems to have no interest in devotion to God. No interest in communion with God. Saul wants victory. Saul wants his name avenged. He's not fighting for the glory of God. He's fighting for the glory of Saul. And he wants God to deliver the Israelites. He wants the win. 
He's seeking that deliverance, but he's not seeking devotion. He's not seeking after God's will or even God's communion with him. He simply wants to win, and so he throws out this command for a fast in hopes that it might bring about deliverance. And friends, I think that's what so many of us still do today. We get in a difficult situation, and what do we do? Well, God, if you'll just do this, then I'll do whatever you ask. Well, we want deliverance from sickness. And we want deliverance from disease. We want deliverance from hardship. We want deliverance from debt. We want deliverance from suffering. We want deliverance from difficult relationships. And so things get really difficult and really intense for us. And then we throw out these desperation prayers, not out of a desire to glorify God, and not even really out of a desire to be changed by God, But we just want God to get us out of this mess. And friends, if that resonates with you, if you see a hint of that in your own life today, then it may be that you too have an empty religion. A focus on deliverance and not devotion. We also see point two here that empty religion places ritual over repentance. So as the story continues, we see that despite this hardship that Saul had put on his army, uh, his army is still successful. And so they are pursuing the Philistines and they are conquering the Philistines. But the Scripture tells us very clearly that the people are faint. That, That word there, that term, very faint, it means they're literally about to lose consciousness. And so they're just on the edge of that as the sun starts to go down. And you can imagine this scene. They're famished, they're exhausted, that they're watching that sun going down, knowing as soon as the sun goes down, we can eat. And as soon as the sun goes down, that's exactly what they do. Now they take the spoils. Now they take all this livestock from the Philistines. And they do it so quickly that they don't take into consideration the preparations, the the, the regulations, the instructions, the commands that God had given them regarding how they were to eat meat. And specifically, they ignore what God had told them in His Word about draining the blood from the meat before they would cook it and they would eat it. They're so famished, they're so hangry here, that they just slaughter these animals and they prepare them and they begin to eat them and they ignore God's instructions about these things. Now, we may read this and think, well, Well, what's the big deal there? Does God really care about these particulars when it comes to what we eat? We live on this side in a new covenant. We we don't follow these Levitical uh, dietary codes anymore. And so it's easy for us to look back on this and say, well, well, what's the big deal? And yet I'll remind you this morning, friends, God's still concerned with us doing things the way He tells us to do them. In fact, we'll experience that today as we come to the Lord's table together. You'll notice in these little pre-packaged cups, we still pay attention to some things. There's still juice of the vine in here in this cup. That There's unleavened bread in here. And we, we take it this way for a reason because we've been instructed by the Lord. We have this picture of what God's given us in His Word and we try to follow it as best we can. There's a reason this morning we don't pass out Skittles and ale 8s 
We take the Lord's Supper in a specific way because we've been instructed and because this specific way, it reminds us of something. This unleavened bread is significant. It's a reminder to us of how when God delivered His people from Egypt, how He delivered them so swiftly, there wasn't time for the bread to rise. And so that when they would take that bread in the future and they would celebrate that deliverance, every time they took that unleavened bread, they would be reminded of the quick deliverance of the Lord. We need that reminder today, don't we? We live in a time of waiting. We live in a time of longing. And we need to remember that when God chooses to act, God will do so swiftly. It's significant how we take this bread and what we take when we take this bread. As it is with this cup, this juice of the vine, this reminder to us of the blood of our Lord Jesus that seals this new covenant with us. So that's why we don't just substitute any old liquid and any old substance. We pay attention to what God has told us in His Word. And God had commanded His people to pay attention to these things. Remember, Saul has lost the blessing of God because he did not pay attention to God's instructions. He did not follow them. He was rebellious against them. And here we see His people following suit as they now take this food and they eat it in a way outside of how God had commanded them. Now, in verse 33, Saul finds out what's going on. And remember... (laughs) Saul seems very bent now on being religious and doing things the right way, at least in that regard. And so he orders a great stone to be brought out before him. And he orders all of the food to come there to the altar and all of it to be prepared the right way on the altar. Again, we don't know that Saul is really following God's will here or doing things according to how God is instructed or if he's just seeking God's favor again, trying to win some points, you might say. And so all seems to be well and good, but Saul's not satisfied with that. And so he orders the army to go and pursue the Philistines at night. And notice here, this pattern we see with God's people, they seem to be willing to go along with Saul, but they're not very enthusiastic about it. I mean, when you consider the response of Jonathan's armor bearer to him, and you compare that with the response of the Israelites here to Saul, do whatever seems good to you. I mean, you can almost hear the the apathy in their voice. Well, if that's what you want to do, Saul, then I guess we'll go along with it. Well, whatever seems good to you. And then the next thing we see, verse 37, is this priest, perhaps it's the glory departed Ahijah, suggests that Saul seek God's guidance first. Maybe he reminds Saul, okay, wait, Saul, you you need to be more religious about this. We need to go through the right motions here. Let's, let's seek God's favor. And so Saul inquires of the Lord, but the Lord doesn't answer Saul. Now here we see again that the silence of God in Saul's life. God has removed his favor from him. But notice how Saul responds to this. Saul doesn't for a moment consider that this is his fault. Or that for a moment that he's done something wrong. Saul's immediate thought is, wait, well God is silent. Well, somebody around here's done something wrong. Not me, but, but somebody's around us. And even if it's my son Jonathan, somebody's going to pay the price for this. 
And so then he goes through this process of casting lots and using the, the Urim and the Thummim. And we don't really know a lot about this. If, if somebody uh, on the internet or in a book says to you, well, here's exactly what this was, I wouldn't necessarily believe him because we just don't know exactly what's taking place here. When we know this practice of casting lots was a way that God at times in the Old Testament would reveal His will to His people. We've seen that already in 1 Samuel. I mean, that's how Saul is appointed to be king in that public ceremony. It's through the casting of lots. We see that as well as we consider the, the sin of Achan and how Achan is called out before the people and for his sin. And it seems that maybe Saul is thinking about that right now because he's thinking, well, somebody's sinned and somebody's done something wrong. And so he goes through this whole practice of casting lots and he lines himself and Jonathan up on one side and the nation on the other side. Almost a picture there of saying, I know I didn't do anything wrong. I'm sure Jonathan didn't do anything wrong, but you guys did something wrong. But then he goes through this process and it becomes evident that the lot falls on Saul and Jonathan and that one of them is guilty. Now again, we don't know a lot about this process. We don't even know that God is actively involved in this process. If they're just going through the motions here. But what happens through this is it does become evident that Jonathan has not obeyed his father's oath. And so Saul confronts Jonathan and Jonathan admits that he ate the honey. And, and notice here, he doesn't offer any excuses. <laughs> and he doesn't tell his father, Father, you've, you've cursed the land. You haven't just cursed me or your people. You've troubled us. Look at what you've done. No, Jonathan here is willing to accept whatever consequence may come. Even if that consequence is death. Saul, it seems, is willing to kill his son for this. But notice how the people respond. The people say, no way. You're not going to harm a hair on Jonathan's head. Why? Because Jonathan's the one who's acting like a king. Jonathan's the one who's leading his people into battle. Jonathan's the one who's courageous and strong and seeking after the Lord. And the people here have just had enough, it would seem, of Saul. They're not willing at this point to say, well, you do whatever seems right to you. Though so they say, no, we're not going along with this. And then the Scripture tells us that they... They ransomed Jonathan. Again, we don't know what transaction may have taken place there, but what we know is that this term is used for deliverance. And so they, they did something here to save Jonathan from his father. They saved him from Saul's empty religion. <laughs> that was focused here more on ritual than repentance. Saul didn't stop for a moment and considered that the sin was on his part and that he needed to turn from his sin. No, he thought if I just go through this religious ritual, then everything will be okay. And that's what so often we do as well. It's what empty religion leads us to do. To be religious. And the problem is, is that rather than looking at our own heart and our own sin that we need to repent of, we just look for something else religious to do to try to make things better. A prayer to pray. A religious observance to attend. A, a spiritual superstition. A religious ritual. We think if we just go through these steps, everything will be okay. I mean, think about the Lord's Supper. Think of how often people take the Lord's Supper 
without really thinking about what the Lord's Supper is and without considering what we learn from the Lord's Supper, without even taking a moment to follow God's instructions pertaining to the Lord's Supper, but they just do it thinking, well, it's some type of some, some supernatural fix. Things aren't going well for me right now. Maybe if I go take the Lord's Supper, they'll be okay. I'm having a hard time in my marriage. Maybe if I go to church this Sunday, things will just get better. And we do these things. We go through these motions without stopping and considering our need for repentance. And we should always consider our need for repentance when we come to the Lord's table. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy matter will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Well, what's that mean? Well, he goes on to explain, let a person examine himself, then and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So what is God teaching us here? He's saying before we come to this table and take this bread and take this cup, we need to first consider what the bread and the cup represents. We need to consider why it is that Jesus' blood was shed for us. We need to consider the Gospel and our response to it. We need to consider are we in a right covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ? We need to be a repentant people. We need to be a trusting people. We do not come to the Lord's table and take the bread and take the cup and then go curse our neighbor. But we don't take the bread and take the cup and then go out there and say all kinds of foul things or just carry on in carnal flesh. We take it trusting in the Gospel of Jesus to change us. Now this does not mean that the Lord's table is only for perfect people. If that were the case, we'd just have some empty baskets this morning. But what it means is that we come because we trust in a perfect Savior. And we consider the Gospel and so, as we come to that point in our service in just a few minutes, we're going to take a chance before we take that cup and that bread to stop and consider and pray, Lord, am I living a repentant life? Am I trusting in You? Is there sin in my life that I'm just unwilling to repent of? Am I holding on to this world and not trusting in Your Word? Am I trusting in the Gospel of Jesus? Or am I just going through some religious motion this morning? Friends, we're not inviting you to practice empty religion today. We're inviting you to practice true religion today. Trust in Jesus. A gospel that rests on the hope that's found in the cross. We don't come to this table without first considering what it represents. And that's the difference between placing our hope in a ritual and a practice and placing our hope in a covenant relationship with God that comes through repentance and faith. And so empty religion, it seeks deliverance over devotion. It places ritual over repentance. And then last, we see the empty religion. It may help us, but it can never save us. The final section of our passage summarizes now military victories of Saul during his reign as king. And it tells us more about his family and and it kind of may surprise us because it's overwhelmingly positive about Saul. It mentions all these conquests and all these positive things on the heels of some pretty negative passages about 
Saul. But you'll notice something. There's no mention of God in these verses. There's no mention of the Lord saving Israel through these conquests. These are simply earthly, worldly victories of a king who has lost God's favor and God's blessing. And they serve as a reminder to us that we too can achieve great things on this earth without the blessing of God. That we can go through every religious motion and every religious practice and be lost and condemned. In the end, it asks the question of us, what, what are we truly left with? One commentator I read this week said it this way about this final few verses. The vital assessment cannot come from the applause of men within history but only from the God who reigns over history. What matters then is not success, whether political or military, but covenant. Yahweh is not looking for winners, but for disciples. Do you hear that, friend? God's fundamental, God's primary focus throughout His Word is not that we be winners, Not that we be achievers. Not that we have great conquering victories. But that we be repentant, faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. Empty religion may give you every victory and every success this world has to offer. But it will not save your soul. And it's fitting that we be reminded of that in an ever-confusing culture that seems to be bent on religious ritual and practice outside of the context of a covenant relationship with God. Empty religion here, it seems, may have helped Saul. Perhaps his appearance before the people became one of a great religious king and they were more willing to follow him as times would go on and battles would go on. But if you know how the story ends, you know the lostness of Saul's heart. And that his empty religions couldn't save him and it can't save us either. I meet people all the time who are confused on this point. They think if they just do more religious things, if they just read their Bible more, if they just pray more, that their hopeless situation will get better. And, and perhaps it will. I think it's a good thing for you to come to church. I'm glad you've come to church today. I think it's a good thing to open up your Bible and read it. You should do that. If you don't do that, do it. If you do it, do it more often. It is a right thing for us to pray. We should pray. But if we are doing these things out of religious attempt to win the favor of God, then our religion is empty. We should be doing these things as an overflow of a covenant relationship with God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. That comes when we repent of our sins and we place our trust in Jesus. Salvation can only come this way. And so the question for you this morning is, is that what you have? Do you have a true religion that stems from a genuine relationship with God through His Son, Jesus? Or do you have an empty religion that stems from religious observance and practice with no real change in your heart? No repentance, no fruit of salvation. And if that's where you find yourself, then the invitation to you this morning is to repent and to trust in Jesus.
to come to this table not out of another religious attempt to win God's favor, but to come to this table out of genuine repentance and confession. Genuine trust in the body and in the blood of Jesus. And so that's what we're going to do now. This is our invitation and our response to the Word today. It's to come to the table together. And again, uh, we do that a bit differently uh, in this COVID period, but, but we focus on the exact same thing. On the body and the blood of Jesus. So I'll invite you now to take this cup and this bread. And if you weren't with us last time, there's a real thin plastic layer on top of this. And the first thing you'll do is peel that back uh, to take the bread. And then in a moment, you'll peel the rest back to take the cup. But before we do that, I want to remind us again of what God's Word says to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 regarding the Lord's Supper. That there are the instructions, and we'll look at those in a second, but I want to skip down again to verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning, the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. The reminder here is that we don't come to this out of empty religion. We come with genuine faith in Jesus. And we're reminded as we do to pause and to consider. Father, am I repentant today? Or am I just going through motion? Am I truly trusting in you today? Is there sin in my life that I'm just not willing to let go of? I'm not willing to repent of. And if that's the case, then God's Word tells us we're bringing judgment on ourselves because essentially what we're saying in the Gospel is that the Gospel is not sufficient. It's not enough. It can't save us. We're going to hold on to these other things. But you can't do that and take this bread and drink this cup. So I'm going to read the Scripture and I'm going to pray for us. And before we take it, I'm going to give us a moment to pray and to consider these things. So if you would listen and pray with me. 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Father, as we prepare to receive this bread now, I pray that we would each be willing to take a moment and be honest before You. Lord, that through the power of Your Holy Spirit that You would bring conviction to our hearts, Lord, if we are in unrepentant sin, if we're not in right fellowship with a brother or sister in Christ, if we are living in such a way where we are harboring a, a private Sin, we're trying to, to do something that no one else knows about, thinking that then, then it's okay, but, it, but it's not. You, you know all things. Perhaps it's our attitude towards our brother and sister. Or perhaps for some this morning, it's, it's the realization that they've just been going through the motions that they haven't truly trusted in Christ. I pray, Lord, that we would take a moment now to sincerely consider if we are trusting in You. And if we are, Lord, 
to be repentant and to be confessional of any sin that we're aware of in our lives. Not that we have to go through a list of everything we've ever done wrong. But Lord, if there are things we are doing outside of your word today, Lord, help us to turn from them now and repent of them. Friends, if you would just take a moment to go before the Lord, be repentant and pray before we receive this bread together. Father, in these moments, perhaps some even now are praying or have prayed about things they need to do better, (laughs) ways they need to try harder. Father, thank you that we take this bread now not out of a vow to do better and try harder, but out of a thankful heart for a Savior who has finished the work on the cross who has died and whose death is fully sufficient for our sins, who has raised from the dead and conquered sin and death. We take this bread now not because we are perfect people, but because we trust in a perfect Savior. So help us, Lord, to do this now with repentant hearts and with trusting hearts. By faith, we ask this in Christ's name as we receive this bread. Amen. Now, if you haven't already, peel back that cover over the cup. By continuing God's word, we read there in verse 25 in the same way. Also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we thank you now for this cup and we thank you for the new covenant made possible through the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood that covers us and cleanses us. The blood that will allow us one day to stand before you in a new heaven and a new earth. The blood that allows us today to gather as a people and to rightly worship you. Because you have cleansed us and made us new. You've given us a new heart and a new mind. So help us to live according to it now as we take this cup with thankful hearts. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Church family, we are reminded every time we come to the Lord's table together that we are to do this until the Lord returns. And as of this day, or at least this moment of the day, He has not returned yet. And that means we have an opportunity, we have a privilege to go to a world that practices empty religion and to tell them what true and undefiled religion looks like, what it means to worship out of a foundation of a covenant relationship with God made possible through Jesus Christ. We have the opportunity this Advent season to go and tell others about the Gospel. And so we're going to conclude our service today with a hymn that reminds us to do that. Go tell it on the mountain. Help this to be our proclamation as we leave this place and go tell a lost and dying world about Christ. If you would stand together and sing with us.